Bienvenidos a la Chicana Mother Work Podcast. This is Cecilia, Christine, Judy, Yvette, Michelle from the Chicana Mother Work Collective. We are a collective of Chicana, PhD, mother scholars, artists, and activists. The Chicana Mother Work Podcast aims to create a communal space for dialogue that sheds light on how the labor of mothering can be a transformative act within academia and beyond. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Chicana Mother Work is intergenerational. Chicana Mother Work means carving space. Chicana Mother Work means healing ourselves. Chicana Mother Work is an imaginary. Chicana Mother Work makes our labor visible. Our labor is our prayer. Our mothering is our offering. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Um, this is Michelle Tellez, May 1st, 2020, Diel del Trabajador, International Workers' Day. Um, we are very excited to have Dr. Carol Broshin and Lisette Trujillo on our podcast today to talk about transparency. If uh, the co-hosts would like to uh, introduce themselves, I'm coming from Autumn Land here in Tucson. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Yvette Martinez Vu. I'm here in Santa Barbara. Excited to learn more from our Yes. Hi, this is Cecilia, and I'm coming from Boyle Heights, LA. So it's been an honor, really, to know both of these mujeres, local leaders here in Tucson, uh, but whose work has national and international implications. I met Lisette um, when we were both invited to do uh, to tell our stories at this event by Corey Press here in Tucson um, around mothering, right? And so I was blown away by her story. And then I was excited to find out that Lisette was already working with my colega, my hermana, Aki, Carol Broshin. We both are professors at the U of A. And as I said, prior to recording, she's been on the front lines of so many movements for our students, our community, her family. And it's just been great to actually connect with them and learn from them both. So uh, thank you for being willing to be on this show with us. Thank you for your commitment and thank you for your work. Uh, so I want to just read a little bit about their bios and their work um, as a way of introduction. Uh, so Lisette Trujillo is a Tucson small business owner and community advocate for transgender youth and families. She spends much of her time volunteering for the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance Families Transformed, where she and her spouse facilitate a local support group for families of transgender, gender-creative, non-conforming youth. Her local efforts have brought her national attention and she now serves as a member of the human rights campaign, Parent Trans Equality Council. Lisette is a proud member to a 12-year-old trans child and enjoys being a mother above all. Lisette has learned so much through her child's experience and through the experiences of the more than 190 families she leads. She is committed to creating awareness and change around trans youth and their needs by empowering families to know their rights, as well as facilitating trainings and many other advocacy efforts. She has recently helped in leading the effort on inclusive sex ed in Arizona and works tirelessly with organizations such as HRC and Equality Arizona. Dr. Carol Broshin is a queer Chicana, Tejana, feminist, and mother of two teenagers. In 2019, her youngest child, Santi, was a plaintiff in a lawsuit that overturned the no promo homo law in Arizona, a decades-old policy forbidding Arizona schools from discussing LGBTQ people and sexual education discourses. Courses, sorry. 
for work, Carol, is a newly promoted, as of yesterday, felicidades, associate Yay. professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Sociocultural Studies in the College of Education at the University of Arizona. Her professional and scholarly work is rooted in her experiences as a public school teacher and literacy educator on the U.S.-Mexico border. This work is interdisciplinary, crossing and challenging disciplinary and theoretical borders while situated across qualitative inquiry, literacy research methods, and Latinx children's and young adult literature. Carol's work pushes the boundaries of what it means to do equity work, both in literacy and bilingual education. She is deeply committed to making an impact on the K-12 education of immigrant, bilingual, and LGBTQ youth, plus youth, and their families through teacher education in the borderlands. Both phenomenal human beings, we welcome you both. Thank you for coming. Um, so I'm gonna just start with a simple question. Maybe these are your professional bios, right? Um, but I think that I would love to start with the question of, you know, your decision to become mothers, like what, what, what in your life experiences led you to choose to become mothers? And then, you know, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what, what happens then when you become a mother. You said it, you wanna go? It's, thank you so much, Michelle, and, and yeah, all of you for having you. us here. It's such an honor. It's good to be in community with y'all this morning. I, I agree a thousand percent. Thank you, so honored to be here. You want me to go first, Carol? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> wanted to be up. So I have a really weird story about mothering. Like, um, <clears throat> I was 26. I had graduated and was kind of like, I, I, you know, I graduated from the U of A, but I, I was kind of not working in my field. And I don't know, life started. And I had like this surge of like, I want to be a mom. I don't know if y'all had that, but like everything in my body was like, be pregnant yesterday. And um, my spouse and I were not married. We were living together. And I told, I, I one day I was like, I really, I really want a baby. And he told me, I can do that for you. <laughs> and, um, and we got pregnant right away. And, uh, um, you know, it was a tough pregnancy. Like when I met Michelle, she shared her story and it was like, blissful and beautiful she's like on a yoga bar I was like dying the whole time I had preeclampsia <laughs> and I was angry but being a mother has been the most humbling and remarkable experience ever like it was meant to be in that time Daniel was meant to be mine so yeah it was very purposeful but of course I wasn't married so like all of my all of my Chicano family and my husband's family is from Guadalajara so they were like you know, this was an accident. And we were like, no, really, it wasn't an accident, but that's kind of how everyone thought. They were like, they're not married. This can't be. So, but yeah, that's Thank you. how my little babe came to be. Hmm. Um, for me, I was a graduate student um, and I had like recently, maybe the year before, gotten married to the dad of uh, my two kids and we're no longer married. Um, and so it wasn't, I never like, I wasn't one of those young girls who thought I was going to grow up and get married and have kids. Like it just wasn't anything that I ever imagined. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, probably one day my kids will listen to this podcast or not. And so there's things that like I, 
that I, that I want to share mostly because like before I was married and when I was younger, I had made a decision to terminate a pregnancy. And so I feel like, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was married and I got pregnant. It wasn't planned. And so it felt like something that you're just supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't really think that I had another option. And, um, and so I had Joaquin who's now 15, um, in 2004. And then, you know, I was, I got pregnant, uh, and had Santi within like 22 months. So they're not even two years apart. So I was a graduate student with two kids under the age of two. And my then, my now ex-husband was a medical student. And so um, it was kind of crazy. And, you know, and they were both, um, you know, they were were both assigned male at birth. And, um, and I'm so grateful to now understand like maybe now as a mom, I would have, I would make different decisions and choices if I had a baby today. Um, yeah. And, you know, they're both, Santi's 14, Joaquin's going to be 16. It's 10, 20 a.m. in Tucson, Arizona, and they're still asleep, and they will probably be asleep for several more hours. Oh, my gosh. So, something we need to talk about, too, the whole um, teenage thing. Oh, gosh. I, even um, as yeah. adults, I call it the Corona Hueva because... <laughs> Like I haven't wanted to do anything and I, and so, and we have a small business, so we have to keep moving. But my husband's like, what's with us? Like with all the snacking and the sleeping 12 hours. And I'm like, it's the Corona Hueva. <laughs> what's happening right now? I like that Lisa Corona Hueva. Cause it's yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. But if I could just add like one little piece, I think for me, like, especially, you know, I was queer before I got married and then, you know, got hetero married because of my life, because of my life, uh, my family. And, uh, and I think a lot about, you know, queer parents and, and the privilege that I had to just get pregnant, right? And to not have to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars um, to become, you know, a mom. And, and I think about that a lot now, you know, um, especially in queer community and just like how lucky I was at that moment. Um, and to not, and I don't take that for granted. Mm. Um, and I don't, I recognize the privilege that I had at that time. Thank you. Thank you. Very important to note that. I appreciate that. Um, so, in the article that I read where the story of the movement that you all were involved with um, in The Guardian, uh, there's a quote that says, although there's no official data for Arizona, Brochine estimates there are about 140 families in the Tucson area with kids who identify as non-binary or trans. In 2017, a study by the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law estimated that 0.7% of kids in the U.S. between ages 13 and 17 so about 150,000 teens identify as transgender. So one of the questions I had for you both is, you know, at what point or how did you know your child was gender non-conforming? And because I remember uh, 
hearing Lisette say it was a plot twist, like you called it like a plot twist, right? And so maybe you all could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I saw um, gender nonconforming behavior in Daniel from the time he was two. Um, and, I, and I say that because I thought I had a daughter and we did, I did, I gendered my child um, and much to the sentiment of Carol, if I could rewind, I'd probably do things, diff I would do things so differently now. Um, but there were a lot of behaviors in Daniel from the time he was two and my, and my spouse and I would have lots of conversations, like private conversations. What do you think this means? Um, what do you think? Where are we doing something wrong? Um, and then, you know, when he was eight, his friend outed him, not meaning to, not in a bad way, but referred to my son as him. And um, his mother corrected him. And the, the friend's mom was like, no, she's a she. And he looked at us like we were crazy and was like, no, he's a he, uh, which then brought the conversation forward. But my child had left like small signs for like, you know, everywhere all over the house. And so that's why I call it the plot twist because you think you're headed in some direction, right? Like I thought I was going to have like a lesbian daughter and I have a transgender son. Um, and because that's the language that we are, we see most and, um, we don't really think about it. It took me a long time to extrapolate like sexuality from gender and what does that mean? And what does that look like for someone? Um, so I've learned a lot in the last five, six years from my child, but yeah, from the age of two, my, my spouse will say, yes, I, from the time he was really small. And similar to Lisa, like very, Lisa and I have talked about this, right? Like for me, um, the same, I saw signs in Santi um, with the way that they would play with gender when they were about two. Um, they would put on my dresses, they would wear my heels, they would do like fashion shows. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have a queer son, you know? So I feel like as adults, we conflate gender and sexuality. So I was using my own lens and projecting that onto my kid. And, and this went on until maybe about fourth grade and Santi was still like presenting as a boy and um, playing with girls. They only had girlfriends. And, um, and, I re and you know, I remember asking them, um, many times, do you feel like you're in the right body? Do you feel like, you know, um, maybe you would want to use another pronoun? And this, this went on probably for about a year. And I had heard about this camp called Camp Born This Way. Um, but I saw, heard the word camp in it. And I was like, I'm not going to go camping. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I did a lot of camping as a kid. And I was like, no, no, no. Mm -mm, this Chicana is not camping. And so we didn't <laughs> go one year. And then, I, and then I learned that there was cabins. And so, um, so, I, so Santi and I went to our first camp in the fall, in September of 2017. And that's where I met Lisette. And that was my first camp, too. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, for those on your podcast, like I love Carol, like love, love. 
And so um, I saw her sitting across from me and she was not having it. And I was like, we're going to be friends, and, <laughs> you know, because it's so overwhelming. And the first years of learning about, um, you know, your child's needs and community needs is really overwhelming and navigating family and getting through all of that. So I met Carol, I call it my year of rage because I was really upset with our extended family um, at that time. And I'm just grateful that we were able to connect there at camp and that our kids have become friends. And it's always so important to connect with people who understand your experience even if they're not parallel, but to understand like the struggles and the things that you as parents are experiencing in that time, you know? Um, so always appreciative of Carol and um, same, same. family. It just turned into a mush fest. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it was there that, that, you know, and there's people talk about this phenomenon is like it was there at camp at Santi. I think on the second day, they changed their pronouns to they them pronouns. And this was they're still they 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 use they them pronouns and identify as trans femme, non-binary, even though they're more like femme presenting. And so you know that also opened. You know I'm I'm I credit Santi for teaching me so much about um, allowing or the, this in-between space, right? Um, because there's often this pressure, this idea that kids who identify as non-binary or people that identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming or, you know, we need a new word, right? Because the word is trapped. They're non-binary, but we use the word binary in it. So that's another mm. issue. But mm. like um, that they're going to transition, that it's going to be an eventual, oftentimes there's this idea that it's like a, and in between, but it doesn't feel that way for us. And so it has really just shifted me in so many ways. And 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 likely said, you know, it was a year of rage for me too. And I think for both of us coming from different kinds of like Mexicana, Mexicano, Chicano families, um, uh, yeah, like different kinds of challenges, I think. Thanks so much for sharing. I, I just, I'm curious how old were your children uh, when you went to the camp? Just because I'm thinking about my own son and, you know, raising him as, you know, when he was, he's six, kind of turned seven. And when he was little, we were very much about gender neutral, everything. And, you know, you want to try this, you want to try that. But, but we, I was always curious, like how, how old, you know, I know you said, um, we said that at age two, you could tell. And my son, you know, at, at that time, his favorite color was pink. Now it's orange. He goes to school. There's all these gender roles. Um, but I'm just curious, like, how did you, how old were they when they started to choose their pronouns and, um, and even choose their, you know, how they wanted to identify? Yeah, I mean, it's scary as a parent because you, I mean, especially like from like Latinx culture, uh, we are, our parents dominate so much of what we do, right? Like it's it, like you, you ask permission for the things that you're going to do in life. So uh, clearly we are like, you know, like 
people would be like, this is like your American ways. Like this has nothing to do with our culture when we started talking to family about it. What I will say is that, you know, a lot of people will say like, but how did you know? And you try to, it's, it's really an experiential thing because it's not really that Daniel gravitated to like a certain color or a certain thing. It was like in the way in which he demonstrated his gender, right? So like, cuando era bien chiquito, like he would look at himself in the mirror and puff out his chest and deepen his voice and say, I'm a prince in shiny armor. Mm -hmm. And like just the ways in which, like the ways in which he would express himself, like he was obsessed with being a musketeer, like the ways in which he saw himself, like I wanted to dress him in princess stuff and I would buy it all the time. But he was always like, I want to be Aladdin or I want to be Astro Boy because at the time Astro Boy and he would like fly off of things and like he had so many gashes. I was worried that people thought we were harming him, Um, but he was just like jumping off of things and like eating dirt. And he spent a lot of time like just in in a diaper because I would put him in girl clothing and that didn't feel good. So he would strip that all down and go dig in the yard and, you know, and so it's just like, it's really interesting because it showed up in so many ways, um, even though I was dressing him every day. And I think that's the misconception a lot of folks have is like, if you dress them a certain way, if you give them access to certain toys, that they're going to be a different way. And it's just like, I was the worst. Like he was like, necessarily true. Yeah. He was like, mom, can I be sporty? And I was like, sporty spice. We got it. Like glitter, like pink, everything was very (laughs) gendered. And, um, you know, like he, Michelle, he watched that storytelling video and he's like, mom, you forgot to tell people. Cause I always say like, I had this vision that I was going to have this daughter and we were going to go get Manny Petties. Cause I'm super, I'm super feminine. So like, I love, um, y'all are staring at my face right now, but like, I love makeup and nails and stuff. And, um, Daniel is like, you forgot to tell them that we still go get pedicures together. Like that's something we do. You just do it with your son. And I was like, I know I totally forgot. But people don't realize that it's not like you're experiencing something that you can't really put words to. And then you're worried, like, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I influence them in the wrong way? What if I, like, what if I ruin my child? Really, that's, and that's something that all parents can relate to. Like, what if I ruined your life in a way that is not, like, we can't come back from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a good parent, you're worried about that. Uh, I think worried about the implications of how you parent them. And so, yeah, it was experiential. And uh, I thought I had a very quiet, like non-opinionated child. And then, you know, they get to express themselves as themselves as he, him. And, and uh, I have this very happy, rambunctious child. He was eight. Uh, it was a really hard conversation, like uh, to ask, to finally ask and say, okay, now we really are moving in this direction. This really is this thing that we're seeing. Um, so he was eight. And, and then you deal with family and how we ask, you know, how we navigate um, Chicanic families. And it's like, why are you allowing this to happen? Right. Or why are you like, you're the mom, you know, better. And I'm like, yeah, I know that I've been seeing this thing and my kid's really unhappy. And not only that, but Daniel had like anxiety tics, which I know um, that's something Carol and I related a lot on too, was just talking about our kids' mental health and how they were, how they were um, 
navigating the the dysphoria and the not being seen for who they who they are and so um every every parent wants to see their child be happy you know so at some point you just move you move the one foot forward for you know for us um santi was 11 and um and because at the time they were like very well one it's pre-puberty age right and so like for us um it wasn't as clear before puberty I, i know that for a lot of families you know the thing about like trans kids is that there's no like one way, right? Um, there's no one sign. It's like so many. And and as they said, knows, I think when I, when I was quoted in the Guardian piece, it was like 145 families. I think now there's almost 200 families here. And, you know, Lisette will tell, can share, right? The kind of diversity within the experiences of the kids are so, is so different. Um, for us, at first it was like, oh, okay, they, them pronouns. Let's just like get on this. We're going to like change all the language in our family from Joaquin having a brother to having a sibling. And Joaquin has actually been amazing around like correcting people's pronouns and being Santi's kind of like front line. Um, you know, I don't think we talk enough about siblings and the roles that siblings play in kind of mitigating um, all the transphobia. Um, but then that later that year, I think because Santi has an older sibling, an older brother who went through, who was going through puberty, then Santi knew exactly what was going to happen to their body. And that's when the dysphoria really hit and that's when like the body harm started and when you know at the first year of camp I was like oh I don't need to worry about I don't need to worry about the doctor's conversations and the puberty blockers and any of that I don't need to worry about that and then like the kind of learning curve that came because of the signs that I was getting at home um were scared it got there was a moment where things got really scary for us um and you know and and you know we're in tucson my family's you know in south in in south texas uh on the border there in austin and we're we're far right like i felt like we already had a buffer and for me you know i always tell people that like after i got divorced and like fully came out as a lesbian like i feel like i provided that buffer Right. My family already had to kind of like deal with that. And like I set a lot of boundaries with my mom and, you know, in a way that like I needed to protect for myself so that by the time, so that when Santi came out, I had already, I already had to do that work. So it was like, if you don't accept, if for those of you that didn't accept me in your life, forget it. You're not having any access to my kid. Um, But um, but for my mom in particular, you know, there was a lot of sadness and a lot of misunderstanding, but then eventually, you know, and I think, you know, Lisa and I can, maybe when we, if we talk about this, right, like raising 
trans kids in, in Chicanx families, right? Like, I feel like there's this misconception that somehow we are more transphobic than other communities. And that's just not true. I, I would say that all families, regardless of, you know, your race and ethnicity and class, are going to have internalized transphobia. Absolutely. And so somehow there's this belief that, you know, Latinos are more transphobic or more homophobic. And I just, I just don't think that's true. Um, and, and I feel like if my 80 year old immigrant mom can use they, them pronouns or in Spanish, right? Like ella, I mean, that's, we can have a whole conversation around you know, the kind of linguistic shifts that have to happen in Spanish. But it, I'm like, if my mom can get it, like, everyone else should be able to get on board. Like, But it took years. It didn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. And I agree with you a thousand percent, Carol, because like, so, and when I talk about our families, I think it has more to do with the fact that, like, Latino families, Latinx families, Chicanx families, we're all enmeshed in each other's lives. Like, right? Like how many, it's just like this weird enmeshment, everyone's together. Like I remember with our family, they wanted to have like, because my, my husband's the youngest of 10. So there's all these like, you got to get through every sibling, right? To get, mm. to, get to where you want to, there's got to be some common agreement. But yeah, my husband's 84 year old dad is on board and supportive. And so I agree if our, if our immigrant, 85 year old, you know, 84 year old, 80 parents can, can start using pronouns and have that discussion change and prox change through proximity is possible. Mm -hmm. And also too, to go off of what you were reading from the guardian in our, in the, in the family support group that I facilitate, there's, oh, there's about 200 families mm -hmm. just in Tucson alone in Phoenix. There's another parent community that's about 200 plus families, but we also know that Al Rio works with about 300 trans youth. So we know that there are populations that we are not even connecting to, um, whether those are language barriers, cultural barriers, whatever those reasons are that we are not seeing those kids. There are families that reach out to me through connection or they heard, and they're not going to come to support group. They're not going to participate in their way, but they still need connection to, um, understand how to do th legal name changes or how to find resources. Um, and so a lot of times we are, we are, we are missing people. And then you get into the conversation of we are at the border, um, immigrant families, how they choose to navigate um, their children's transitions. And if they're undocumented, are they willing to come and find resources? That's fearful. That's, that's fearful for them to have to come out to connect with community, not, not knowing if it's safe or not, right? And so we do need more visibility when it comes to brown families, mm -hmm. Latinx families to come out and say, no, there are safe spaces where you can connect and find support and people who are willing to help you navigate your child's uh, social or physical trans transition. We can find those resources and be of support and speak in your language or, or whatever it is that you need or talk to your family. Um, and, and help share our stories so that you can realize that you aren't alone, that there are more of us that exist and, and more of us navigating this experience and hopefully doing it successfully because our kids are happy for the most part, you know.
except for some the normal kids stuff, right? Um, I understand that the circumstances today for a lot of us are very different and more complicated. So we also wanted to ask you what it means to raise trans kids in the era of coronavirus, um, um, to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about not just my kid, but we know that the majority of trans and LGBTQ youth aren't out at home. And so I just think about like, they're now back at home where they're being misgendered, where they have to like make Zoom calls for their LGBTQ support groups from their bathrooms. Um, this applies to college kids too, right? They're being dead named. Um, we've seen an increase in sexual violence and depression and suicide right now during COVID-19. And I can only imagine that those numbers are higher for trans and queer youth. Um, I think about the lack of community. Like I know just last night, Santi was group messaging with Daniel and, um, and Alex. And I'm like, why don't you all have a, a FaceTime chat? Like, why don't you, you know, stay in community with your trans friends? Because I see, I mean, I think, I don't know about y'all right now, just as mothers, like an increase in depression and kind of, you know, COVID hueva or COVID like, you know, apathy. Um, and so I can just imagine, like if we see that, you know, I think about the kids that, that aren't out at home. I think about them a lot. It's like why I do my work in teacher ed. Uh, we often know that they're out at school first. And then for us in particular, like we're struggling with getting labs done still, Lisa. And so I feel like that with COVID-19, it's an increased anxiety around just kind of getting to the doctor. And like, there's almost like a delay in that. Yeah. Um, Which is hard because it was already a delay, right? So. Yeah. And then you probably so, don't want to go to the doctor. Yeah, no. And to go get labs that might not be successful, right? And so lots of Zoom therapy uh, is what we're doing. Um, and lots of like maybe avoidance even. Delay, delay. I don't know how to put it. My own. <laughs> my, how, how about you, Alisette? How are y'all doing? We're, we're okay. What I will say is that um, so trans youth in under COVID, um, I, I, I'm on a lot, uh, on a few national calls and the big conversation and it's something that Carol and I have talked about often, a lot of families lose their family when their children transition. So they lose family. And so COVID was that, that knock on the door where all of a sudden people were like, do I have a will in place? Mm -hmm. If I get sick, who will my trans child go to that would be safe? like who would our kids go to that would be safe and follow the the plan the transition plan that we've created for them or be supportive enough to you know so if for parents on like on massive parent forums that's been the conversation is like a will and testament the things that you think you have time to leave like you think you have time to mend fences with you know your mom or your dad or your siblings and then COVID hits and you're like, if I get sick, who will my child go to? Or if I, if I and my spouse get sick, right? Like you start thinking about it. And I know like Carol and I had this conversation. I, I think it's been like over a year, right? Carol, I don't know how I long so. ago it was. But I just remember being on, the, on a phone call with Carol and like crying and being like, who would I leave my baby with? And she's like, you promised me. Like 
you promise me that you're going to check in on Santi if I pass. Like, and I was like, and you promise me that you're going to check in on Daniel and you're going to make sure that our families are doing the things that they're supposed to do for our babies. And so, yeah, COVID has brought up, I think, a lot of fears that we that we think we have time to avoid or to maybe have time to prepare for. Um, and so it's been like this thing where you're like, no, like at any time, right. It could happen at any time. And so it's terrifying. Um, but we're okay. I mean, things are okay. I'm grateful that a lot of the state activity, the anti-trans laws, like anti, you know, um, I can't even remember the number. What was it, Carol? HB 20s. 76 what was it trans youth playing sports um i as more visibility occurs like in the last five years we've seen more uh parent and trans youth visibility and through that obviously you get more of a pushback we're getting like these really strong kicks around um you know uh removing trans youth from sports teams public spaces uh birth certificate documents like you're seeing like this huge push and using trans youth as a political wedge, right? Because that's that's the fear. The fear is the the trans girl in the locker rooms, and you know it's all this penis fear. And um, you know it's just it's been overwhelming. So the silver lining of COVID is that we've seen a lot of that shut down. We've seen a lot of that stop. Unless you're in like South Dakota and Iowa, where just these people have used COVID as a time to kind of keep pushing but in Arizona it's it's gotten a little bit quiet and it's given me as a as an organizer time to really catch my breath because it's hard to be a small business owner and facilitate a group a large group of families and navigate their needs and then still be a mom and still be me right like still do Lisette stuff and could still have time for myself so it's been okay i've appreciated the social distancing and the the silence of this not so normal time and i try to protect something like during around the trump stuff you know like we probably all do but but it's impossible now like i don't know if y'all saw just a couple of days ago trump announced that doctors during COVID can now decide to not treat trans patients and i saw that news and i was like i'm gonna just like, I don't share that news with my kids, but with TikTok and Instagram, Santi's like, look, mom. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's impossible. You know, there are little babies, right? And we just want to like put them in that bubble. And it's just not, it's not possible. Carol, I wonder if you found, cause I know like, um, Daniel meeting other youth activists, like even when, like, for example, when Santi, when they were in Teen Vogue, right? um and quoted in Teen Vogue Danielle saw that and was like oh yeah like that's incredible and it feels empowering that they can speak out and advocate for themselves I think that Danielle felt really inspired by them and then Danielle meets other youth advocates and and is like I can do this too do you find that Santi feels it like more of a burden or do you feel that they're seeing the 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 empower or feeling the empowerment of being able to stand up for yourself. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Like I think on, 
I think that it's like part of it. They're just like, oh yeah, like it just it's weird. It's like it, they they're just a normal fourteen year old who was like, oh yeah, you know, I was in Teen Vogue, which is really silly and kind of like I want to eye roll at them. Um, but the other piece is like connecting with other youth activists nationally, um, especially through Instagram. I feel like has given them their own platform. So I don't know if you, you know, look if you've seen any of their stories lately, but they're on like an anti-cis straight man rant. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, <laughs> and I feel like part of that is like that, you know, I can like participate in calling culture and like critique and push boundaries and know that like, there's lots of people, um, doing this work and my mom is going to have my back Mm. and if this doesn't work out can we sue them and I'm like no that's not the solution (laughs) (laughs) anyway you know and how how am I now you know especially when we start other forms of um hormones you know like how can I just have like a trans femme team you know that comes with right all the other things that come with raising teens as michelle knows or i don't know how old sissy man you met your children are but um you know (laughs) yeah moving into teenhood is a brings its own things i think that yeah anyway yeah, I know Michelle just recorded a Jagana Mother Work podcast with Judy about uh, teen parenting. And my son's 10, so he's in the tween stage, so he's getting to that point. Um, but uh, so my son identifies um, as a boy, so a cis boy. But, um, and, you know, but we do talk about um, gender all the time, but I've learned mm-hmm. so much just even in this conversation and things that I can do with my son, because we've also had this conversation among us as, you know, cis women, cis mothers, um, and a lot of us in Jugend Mother are mm-hmm. raising boys or cis, yeah. uh, they identify as uh, cis boys. So um, so we actually have two questions. Um, I know we're getting close to the end, but um, so I'll just ask both and maybe whichever one um, you'd like to answer. So we're wondering, how did you start moving towards activism and public um, advocacy? So um, doing this work within your home, but also into your larger communities um, that's so necessary and needed. I'll just start with there and then we can move to the second question. I, I just want to like acknowledge Carol talking about um, the choice to terminate a pregnancy because I've been, I've been ruminating on this a lot lately, especially under COVID. And I was watching some documentary about like, women's reproductive rights. And, um, and so I too chose to terminate a pregnancy. I, I, I've never shared that openly. Um, but I was uh, 22 and uh, chose to terminate a pregnancy. And, um, you know, like you have all the Catholic shame around all of that, right? So like coming into my 40s and owning all these things about myself and also being like very aware of the fact that like I chose Daniel, like I chose to have him and he didn't ask to be here. And so as a, you know, there's, there were so many influences. I have, um, I'm first generation Chicanx. My dad um, never graduated from high school and built a small business for himself and sent me to college and 
was like, Lisa, you're going to, your, your generation is going to get closer to the American dream. And then you're going to work really hard and that your children are going to get closer to the American dream. And we're going to eventually, uh, win at this. Right. And, um, so when Daniel shared with us, um, that, you know, that he told us, I know my body's wrong, but in my mind and in my heart, I'm a boy, like in my insides, I'm a boy. Um, I was terrified because all of a sudden you're aware like that your children's rights and civil liberties are even less than yours. Like now the wall, the barriers that Daniel, the challenges, the social challenges he's going to have in terms of like employment, how like living, like what people don't even know is that like in the state of Arizona, there's only five municipalities that have non-discrimination ordinances. And so if Daniel moves somewhere where there is not a non-discrimination policy in place, can he, will he get housing? Can he be discriminated and not get employment? Um, and just like what Carol mentioned, like now you have medical discrimination, right? And so not only is, you know, not only is my child, um, you know, born of an immigrant father and first-generation mom and having to navigate like cultural things, he's also having to now navigate his gender and what does that mean for him? And so thinking about the fact that I chose Daniel and thinking about how the, the barriers and the walls that stood in front of me in terms of like, you know, the microaggressions that even I as a brown woman face, um, taking all of that into account really propelled me forward and just like lit fire under my belly around advocacy. And it didn't happen like right away, it was a slow burn. Like it was like saying yes to showing up here and saying yes to showing up there. And then, you know, Carol is easy to get into uh, grassroots organizing with because she's like, what if we just, you know, walk out? What if we just, you know, organize? And I'm like, sure, let's do it. How do, yeah, why not? So I think sometimes having like a partner in crime to move you forward is necessary in helping you stay brave. But um, yeah, I refuse to, I, I refuse to have Daniel do this alone. He doesn't have to do this alone. It's like the one thing that I've said over and over again, like I can't die until the world is safe for my baby mm. because I brought him here. And it just feels like this deep obligation, you know? That's so deep. Lisa, that resonates so much. Thank you for voicing that. Yeah, thank you. I think like knowing that we're, that we all have each other and that we can't do the activist work without building coalitions and knowing that like we're not alone in it and feeling like if we don't do it, who's going to do it? That's powerful. Well, I want, I think we have one more question for you so we can start wrapping up. So see, we'll ask that. Um, I think we could be here for another hour, but in the interest of time and, and maybe we can invite you back at some point, but Ceci. Before I get to the next question. Yeah. I think, um, Carol and Lizette, how you both kind of referenced, um, building coalitions. And I, I think a lot about, um, how do we form kinships, you know, in this case, like queer kinships or like trans kinships where it's not always um, biological, right? Maybe, maybe sometimes, um, you know, how do we expand that to create um, more 
care and justice and love. So I think um, it's just the way that even you two speak to each other, you know, as friends or as, you know, comrades in the struggle, it's just really beautiful to hear and witness. And it, it, it's, it's um, a beautiful model for the rest of us. You know, even even if you know we don't happen to have um, children who are trans, or maybe not yet. You know, so you know, gender is very fluid; it could always change. And you know, who knows in the future? But um, so I just did want to, um, you know, honor that and recognize that. So thank you. Um, and then, um, so we do want to ask another question about gender. Um, so we're think so just since this is a space of like the Chicana Mother Work um, podcast, um, what advice do you give other um, Chicana moms who are cis women, um, who are raising um, trans kids or gender non-conforming kids or non-binary kids? And then this might be related to um, Carol's earlier comment where you mentioned that you would make different decisions or choices if you had a baby today. Um, so what are your, so what advice would you give to um, mothers who are cis women? you know, thinking about gender, practicing gender in a different way for their kids? And I think like for me, it, there was a moment where we were in the car and I'd had a folder because we had gone to Mexico with the kids' birth certificates in it. And something looked at their birth certificate and was like filled with emotion. And I looked at them and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I didn't know better, that uh, I didn't know at the time that I could, you know, not mark your gender. I mean, I, there's where I don't even I I know there's some states now, maybe one or two, right, where you could do that. Um, uh, and and so I think like not I. I think we have to, to encourage each other to not gender our kids, to not have gender reveal parties, to not participate in that, and to like raise our kids um, and be, you know, for me, right, as a cis mom, as a cis bio mom, to think about like all those privileges that I have and to like be the ones who stand up for other kids and to teach our kids to be allies, um, allies as a verb, right? For other kids. Because I think that what we know is that the burden always falls on like the trans kids to educate other kids or the trans families. And I would love to imagine a place where, um, you know, it, what, where that burden shifts um, and then the other piece is like, I think like with my family, uh, I had to set really strict boundaries and in a moment it felt, it felt so alone and so isolating. Um, but they came around and maybe not all of them are going to come around. And this is when you turn right to, to Chicana. Um, kinship to queer kinship to you know as Ansandua said like making familia from scratch right um, like that that you do find others you build community 
that we're actually not alone in this, even though it might feel like it. Um, and that like our children's stories are their stories um, and to give them space for that and to not, I, I, I get annoyed often with, and Lisa will say this, I can't handle like the, what I call like cis fragility and cis tears. I don't have the patience for that. That's why Lisa facilitates the parent group. I mean, not, there's lots of reasons that she facilitates that. Lots. She's like, because I am like, I can't, I can't with the cis tears and cis fragility. Get over it. Like, go cry somewhere else. Um, that is not our job as moms. It's like, have that kid's back. And yeah, there's some loss and some mourning, but um, move on from that. I think what I would tell Chicanx moms, Latinx moms is like, challenge the status quo. Like, I mean, that's what we were all doing anyways, right? Like we were trying to like break the mold of our mothers and our grandmothers and also embrace the parts of them that were beautiful and like gave us like things that we still cling on to. Like I can't clean frijoles and not think about my, my Nana Amalia, right? Like, and, and, and connect in that way and challenge ourselves to say like, we can hold on to culture, we can hold on to ourselves and we can hold on to our, our, our mother, our femininity and this, and still allow ourselves to break molds and allow our children to break molds and allow our children to break off. Because what I see too, Carol had touched on this earlier, is that like, look, gender has always been fluid. It's always been, the way people express has always been, social structures are the things that do end up dominating. But what I'm seeing with youth, and it's been part of conversations I've had with um, medical providers, is that we're seeing youth really challenge this idea of like, what does um, transition look like? And, you know, if you're talking about transition, when it was, when finally uh, trans folks had access to medical care, it had to be binary. They couldn't be gay and a trans feminine woman. They would be like, well, you're just a straight man. So we're not gonna mm. let you transition, right? And so there were ways in which they too were forced to conform in order to access medical care, right? Mm -hmm. And where I think that um, it's so important for us to understand that the oppression is layered and we are all cogs in it. And if we, I, I, I think I wanna tell mothers to love first because if you love first and you love hard, you'll be able to push back and your babies will be able to, to then make the choices for themselves. Transition, mm -hmm. I, I think about Santi and all that they want and encompass and what their future is gonna look like and they're gonna thrive because mom, Carol is going to be mm -hmm. their rock, right? And they're gonna be able to define what trans feminine, non-binary, non-conforming uh, expression is for them knowing that they're loved and that they have someone they can trust and rely on, right? And I'm seeing more trans youth, mine included, saying, I'm okay with A, but I'm not okay with B. And so transition mm. isn't gonna be linear, right? I'm okay with this, but I'm not okay with that. 
And like, honestly, how many of us, I mean, that's what we as women fight for anyways, right? The ability to be able to control our bodies. And what does that mean? And the ability to wear what we want. I mean, the fact that Title VII is being argued at the Supreme Court, are we all waiting on pins and needles? What's that going to mean? Like for me as a woman and how I'm impacted in the workplace. And so when you think about how we're impacted, you can take some of that and then put yourself in a space of like, how are trans folks impacted? Because if I'm impacted in this way, they're going to be impacted even more. What I like to, what I, the analogy that I often use is that like, we're all in little rowboats, right? So like Carol and I are in this like trans youth rowboat, right? And you as the Chicanx mother field, you guys are in this other rowboat. And there's these large waves that are like, you're not going to make it over the wave. And how do we tether our rowboats together mm-hmm. with, you know, Black Lives Matter, things that we are all impacted in. And, and, and how do we tether our boats together? Because if we tie ourselves together, like a large raft full of people, we'll make it over the boat, we'll make it over the wave, right? And so I think that those are things that keep me up at night. And I tell, Carol has been on the phone with me at like one in the morning where I'm like, Carol, I can't sleep. This thing's keeping me up at night. And to have someone to just, like listen right to the thing that you don't have the answer to is meaningful and necessary especially if we're doing this work and we want change like it I can't I like none of us could do it alone so I think having this conversation around coalition building and and mothering and challenging what mothering means and not mothering on autopilot right because mm. we get lost in the day-to-day like, how do we, per- how are we present and purposeful in the way that we mother and love, I think is essential. And I'm not always good at it, but I think to try is the most important. That's so beautiful, so powerful, tethering our boats together and being very purposeful with our parenting. Um, we really want to thank you both, Carol, Lisette, for your time for sharing space with us, um, for sharing your knowledge. Um, before we close, I wanted to see if, and if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you or contact you in any way, um, how can they reach you? They can find me on Facebook and Instagram, I guess. Yeah, Lisa Trujillo, easy to find. Same, or just, you know, seabrushing at gmail.com. Um, or yeah, Facebook, Instagram, like Lisa says. Um, and also for oh I'm so sorry Carol go ahead no no I was just gonna thank you all uh, for bringing us here communing with each other and thank Lisa for always like kind of pushing us forward oh thank you guys so much and if there are families in the uh, southwest area like southern Arizona area um, if you if they are looking for support for trans youth they can find it at uh, sagatusan.org and thank you all for having us here. Carol, I love you. Michelle, this was so much fun. Thank you, Cecilia and Yvette. This thank is incredible. You. No, you all, I, I think we were looking for a title for our podcast and I think we found it with love first, love hard. I think that that's really it, transparenting. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Michelle, for together. And I have, yeah, and just thinking about more about, you know, as we come, as I what I take away from this too is how I could even be um, a better ally because that point of like the burden shouldn't always fall on 
you know, trans kids and trans parents, it's all of our responsibilities, especially mm -hmm. um, cis people with our privilege. And um, I love the phrase cis tears. That's the first time I've heard it. So. <laughs> You know, um, but as, you know, as someone who wants to, you know, I want to, it's my responsibility to do my part to dismantle these structures. So mm -hmm. thank you both for um, this information and just sharing what you do. It's really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody wants resources for schools or reading lists or um, any of that, like, please reach out to me. Uh, I have a lot of things readily available to share or resources to send out. Um, yeah. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Chicana Motherwork on Instagram and Facebook and at Chicana Mothers on Twitter. And please rate our podcast so people like you can find us. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Marta Gonzalez for giving us permission to use the music of Entre Mujeres Sirena for our intro and Vagabundo from Quetzal for our outro. To purchase our book, you can order it through the University of Arizona Press and you could find the link on our website at chicanamotherwork.com. If you want to book us for events, email us at chicanamotherwork at gmail.com or for any other question or to engage with us, we look forward to hearing from you.